story, by your courage and your dependence on God, and by his great faithful provision for you. Your testimony of love and goodness in the midst of suffering and the comfort that he brought you at times through the kindness of his people is appropriate for us to hear today as we come this morning to Jesus' teaching on family. So I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your um, provision for Rebecca and her family. Thank you for your protection of them. Thank you for their courage to follow you. And um, I ask that you will pour into them um, all more than they have lost and that they, as they experience, continue to experience your love um, through your people and, and through your word, that uh, she would experience great blessing. We pray your protection over them. Amen. My name is Nikki, and I work as a pastor uh, with the youth um, and also giving leadership to various other adult ministries here at FAC. And I'm excited that we get to dive back into uh, this, our series on the Gospel of Luke this morning. And so since it's been a few weeks, I thought that we could start off with a review of the story so far. So if you could turn with me, uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 18. And if you are using one of the Bibles that are in the pews, that's on page 834. So you may remember that Jesus was baptized, that after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and there he was tempted by Satan. And directly afterwards, filled with the power of the Spirit, Jesus went to Nazareth to begin his public ministry by preaching in the synagogue. So there, Jesus read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which are here in Luke, chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's important for us to be reminded of this event because it makes sense of everything that Jesus says and does from this point on. This is Jesus' ministry manifesto. It's his vision statement. It's the moment when he declares his intent, that he has come to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy, which was originally given to the people of Israel who were being held captive in Babylon. So there, in exile, Israel was experiencing poverty and affliction under the Babylonians as judgment for their sin of rejecting God's loving rule over them. So although Jesus, uh, sorry, although Israel deserved that judgment, God had mercy on his people and he gave them this promise of future deliverance, a proclamation of good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. So here, recorded in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says to the Jewish people around 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, today, 
Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus goes on in chapter 4 to say that his grace, his offer of grace, is not only for Israel, but also for Gentiles, like the widow of Zarephath and the cleansed leper, Naaman the Syrian. From this point on, Jesus is going to start calling the outsider to himself. And he's going to begin living out this manifesto by proclaiming good news and freedom to those who are physically, spiritually, emotionally, and socially poor. But most importantly, those who are spiritually poor on account of their sin. In chapter 4, verse 32, Jesus demonstrates his authority for this task through his teaching, which comes through both his words and also through his actions. So by his powerful word, Jesus casts out a demon from a man in the synagogue. And then he casts out many demons from people in the crowd, showing his authority and power over evil. He then shows his authority over sickness as he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And in verse 40, he heals all those who are sick with various kinds of diseases. All that Jesus says and does here paints a picture of what it looks like to live under his reign and rule. Jesus is establishing himself as king, bringing in his kingdom by rescuing people from the power of sin. And then in verse 43, he proclaims, I, or he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Jesus moves on, and his ministry of salvation moves forward with him, bringing rescue to whoever comes to him in faith. Then in chapter 5, Jesus' actions and words match here we see Jesus once again demonstrating his authority. And this time it's over people, as he calls Peter to follow him. Over uncleanness, as he touches a leper and makes him clean. And over sin, as Jesus confronts Peter and makes Peter aware of his sinfulness. Forgives the sins of a paralyzed man. And calls a sinner, Levi, to repentance. In our sermons through Luke over the past few months, we have been brought face to face with Jesus' power to overthrow the effects of sin in our fallen world. We have learned that, like the paralytic, we can have confidence in Jesus' authority here and now to forgive the sin of every person that comes to him in faith. And we've learned that we can have confidence, whoever we are, to turn away, like Levi, from whatever life we have lived and to turn back to Jesus for forgiveness because Jesus has come as a physician for sick sinners. This is the very heart of the gospel, the good news. The essence of Jesus' mission is to bring salvation to bring freedom to all who are bound and oppressed by sin through his offer of forgiveness. 
This manifesto should be at the heart of all our discipleship. It is, however, an agenda that causes offense, especially to those who think that they do not need a savior. Jesus himself causes offense as he reveals his divine identity by referring to himself as the son of man in chapter five, at the end of chapter five, and then the Lord of the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter six. So that claim to be Israel's long-awaited king makes the religious leaders absolutely livid. Verse 17 says, the scribes and Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So it is into this context that Jesus brings our teaching this morning. Uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19, and then I'm also going to read chapter 8, verses 19 to 21, and that's on page 836 of the Pew Bibles. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to himself and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled with impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch Jesus because power was coming out from him and healing them all. And then uh, chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you, wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear the words, God, words of God, who hear God's words and put them into practice. Jesus had just been teaching in chapter 5 that new wine needs new wineskins because when old wine is put into new wineskins, the old wine ferments and expands and causes the old wineskins to burst. That's what we see playing out in this context. Jesus' teaching was so offensive to the religious leaders that their hearts were figuratively bursting with anger. Jesus' new teaching needs new wineskins. And since the old wineskins of Israel's leadership could not contain Jesus' new teaching, Jesus went ahead and created some new wineskins. 
as we've read, Jesus established a new leadership for the people of God. And he did that by going up a mountain and calling out 12 men. So that is supposed to sound familiar to us. It is supposed to bring to mind a previous event in Israel's history. If you know the Bible story, you will know that this scene um, will remind us of the 12 sons of Jacob who were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Deuteronomy chapter 1, where Moses on Mount Sinai chose leaders from each of the tribes to be heads over them. Throughout the Bible, we see the symbolic significance of the 12 tribes as representing all the people of God. And so therefore, Jesus' actions here are extremely provocative. After exposing the failure of Israel's leadership and uncovering the need for new wineskins, he goes up a mountain, just like Moses did, and after a whole night of prayer, he appoints 12 new leaders whom he names apostles to become the foundation of the new family of God. Luke's careful recording here of the disciples' names, their task, and their commission confirms that Jesus' saving work is a radical fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has promised. And the place of these 12 as the foundation of the people of God, the church, is confirmed throughout the New Testament. So Ephesians 2:20, for example, speaks of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And Revelation 21 verse 14 describes the new Jerusalem as having walls with 12 foundations and the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, Jesus, written on each foundation. These are extremely important people. But they are also very ordinary people. We know most about Peter, James, John, and Judas, but the Gospels give us very little information about the others. And I think that that obscurity itself is intentional. There is nothing inherently spectacular about a person chosen by Jesus. These are ordinary, average people who obediently respond to Jesus' call. What we do know from the text is that um, Jesus chose two sets of brothers. He chose Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they were fishermen. And then Luke's account also tells us in verses 15 and 16 that Jesus included Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. A zealot is a member of a revolutionary political party which was anti-Roman imperialism movement in Israel. And scholars believe that Matthew, who is also known as Levi, and so it's most likely that that would have been the tax collector that we've just seen in chapter 5. Tax collectors are seen to represent the despised Roman state. So a zealot would be about as far removed from a tax collector as a leftist guerrilla is from a right-wing conservative, or, dare I say, perhaps an American Democrat from a Republican. 
The fact that a leftist zealot and a rightist tax collector would now find themselves on Jesus' team speaks to the power of Jesus. Jesus is able to take both liberal and conservative mentalities, both left and right, and by uniting them to himself, he unites them to each other in a higher cause. Jesus chose this diverse group to reflect the values of the kingdom. He did not choose a homogenous club. And we should notice that the group also includes Judas, who ended up betraying Jesus. Do we, the church today, believe that Jesus is still able to overcome the most insurmountable political, social, and class barriers to form missional communities that resemble this? Jesus' choice of disciples teaches us that we need each other and that his mission is a community endeavor to which he welcomes the gifts of a wide variety of people, even the gifts of someone like Judas. So, as followers of Jesus today, if we are going to surround ourselves with similarly diverse groups of kingdom people, We need to be prepared for the experience of how it might feel to be part of a team like that. I got a small picture of what that might have been like over our Easter Sunday lunch this year. Around our table that day was one set of three siblings, my children, along with their friend who used to be our next door neighbor her parents, who recently immigrated from Brazil, and my mother-in-law. Ian and I were at one end of the table, trying to pay close attention to the conversation with our guests, for whom English is their second language. And at the other end of the table, a fight was breaking out. There was disagreement as to how many carbohydrates were contained within a bag of Doritos. The squabbling siblings elicited our help to interpret the ingredients on the package, but we asked them not to interrupt because one of our guests was right in the middle of telling a story. Fury ensued, and the various children left the table in exasperation. Later in the evening, I informed one of my children that I expected better behavior at a family meal. I did not expect the retort. But mom, this is exactly my point. It was not a family meal. These people are not my family. This opened opened the door for a mini mom sermon, where I explained that actually, Jesus calls us into new experiences and formation of family with people who are not necessarily related to us by blood and who may be very different from us culturally, ethnically, intellectually, economically. And I went so far as to to explain the verses that we read earlier, that when Jesus' mother and biological brothers wanted to see Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 and 21, Jesus actually left them outside with the crowd and said to the disciples, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, this may have been a little too much information given the context, 
But nonetheless, it shows Jesus radically redefining family. Jesus' primary allegiance was to those who were following and obeying him. Even among the 12 apostles, my guess is that similar disagreements to our Easter lunch scenario would have arisen around the table. Perhaps one day, both siblings on Jesus' team were sitting together at one end of the table, and they started getting into it. Or maybe on another day, Matthew and Simon just couldn't put aside their political differences. There would have been so many opportunities for this group to practice forgiveness and reconciliation together. And I believe that Jesus intentionally shaped and formed their characters by inviting them to partner together in ministry with him. So the word apostle. Apostle means sent one. These particular men were commissioned by Jesus for a unique and specific task. They were to be the new wineskins that would contain Jesus' new teaching. And they were to share this new teaching through their words and actions throughout the Roman world. As the foundation upon which Jesus, Jesus would build his new family, the new people of God, the new Israel, the apostles were to represent the values of the kingdom and to participate with Jesus in his mission of salvation to the world. Jesus immediately began preparing the apostles for this task by jumping straight into ministry with them. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. The 12 immediately got to see Jesus in action, welcoming a large crowd, a great number of people. And look where they're from in verse 17. It says they're from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. So these would have been people from within the borders of Israel, but also from beyond. Both insiders and outsiders were welcomed. This team of 12 got to participate with Jesus in welcoming a wide range of people, and they got to witness Jesus' power as he cured people from impure spirits and healed all those who reached out and tried to touch him. What is it that we do as together, as kingdom people? Do we participate with Jesus in his mission of salvation by representing him and welcoming people into the kingdom so that they can encounter Jesus' power to heal, restore, and forgive? Over the last few years, our family has developed the habit of inviting people on our street over for dinner. My daughter, Abby, has particularly caught this vision. And so when the house right next door to ours was sold and bought by new people, she was eager to greet them. So much so that as they were in the process of moving in their belongings, she was standing on the front step inviting them over. On the Victoria Day weekend, Abby was in our backyard, standing on the storage box, talking to the neighbors over the fence. 
And without prior consultation, she once again invited them, and then she called me to let me know that they would be coming over that evening. <laughs> I had already invited guests, our former neighbors. So we made extra space at the table, and we had a wonderful evening, which included comparing our cultural experiences. Our new neighbors, who are originally from Russia, conversed with our former neighbors from Brazil, and Ian and I and our children chipped in, contributing our British, Canadian, and Anishinaabe heritages. Kingdom hospitality. But I haven't always lived like this. And some days, I downright don't want to live like this. Sharing life across difference is difficult. Over the years, though, as I myself have been welcomed over and over into loving Christian communities as an international student or as a new immigrant or a new member of a church or a small group, I've become increasingly enabled by Jesus to extend myself and with others to make space for people. Usually people who are quite different, have a quite different experience of life than I do in the hope that at some point they will encounter Jesus through our welcome and experience the kingdom through our fellowship and hear the gospel through our conversation. I want to leave you with a story about an experience I had early on in my Christian life and ministry. I was working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship to establish and develop student groups at the University of Toronto. We had realized that it can, it can feel very lonely and isolating to be a student at UFT, and so we had determined to start developing community on campus. As we were putting our plans together, we were deeply impacted by a visiting speaker. This speaker said, if you want to experience kingdom community, you must focus your attention on Jesus and not primarily on one another. If you want to experience kingdom community, you must focus your attention on Jesus and not primarily on one another. It's when I have forgotten this advice that my life and ministry have most gotten off track. It's when I've become inward looking, caring, about, uh, caring most about creating comfortable social experiences for myself with people that I particularly, li particularly like, or when I've forgotten that the mission of God's people is to be sent out to bless rather than to hoard or hold on to our blessings. It's at moments like that that I have felt in most danger. And at those times, God has graciously intervened, sometimes through painful experiences, to redirect my vision and my energy back onto Him. When our focus is on Jesus, He changes our hearts. He helps us to leave behind the things that we hold on to for security, which actually hold us back from extending our hands to others. And He helps us to reach out across difference with God's love as representatives of Jesus to welcome people to Him. And as we together encounter Jesus by faith, 
we will experience the salvation that He has the authority to give, freedom from bondage and oppression by sin through His offer of forgiveness. And this brings restoration and healing to every part of our lives and eventually to the whole of God's creation. Jesus intentionally formed diverse groups of equals to embody and spread his good news. The early church continued to do this. For us today at First Alliance Church, we too must continue to form similar kinds of groups which make space and welcome people like you and me and Rebecca to the, the table. Let's keep coming back to Jesus over and over to receive forgiveness from him and empowerment by the Holy Spirit so that we can partner with Jesus in his mission of welcoming sinners into saving relationship with him. As we take that risk and as we make the sacrifice involved, we will be blessed with the experience of new family and we will be able to bless others with the same experience. Like Rebecca, we will be able to say with Peter in Luke 18 verses 28 to 30, we have left all we had to follow you. And Jesus will say, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life.